0: This is a question and answer session with Joel and Andrea, titled, Talking About Nothing, recorded January 21st, 2001, at the Center for Sacred Sciences
1: in Eugene, Oregon.
2: Who has a question? I have a question about the,
1: I've heard the term nothing, I'm speaking to you first, I'm not sure you're both answered, about the term nothing, or nothingness. Um, I I sense what it is, I really don't know a lot about it, but I was wondering if you could give me more insight as to what it is and how you experience it, maybe in daily life. Uh, Nothingness in
0: the context of objects that appear in awareness. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and and as your experience in daily life, how does it... Okay,
0: can I I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. Can I ask you what you think it means?
1: Well, what I've experienced is just a space, an empty space that occurs right when I start to go to sleep at night. I experience a space, an empty space. Okay, so you're so
0: you, so. This idea of nothingness is the absence of objects, not where there's objects present. Okay. Um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's see. How can we talk about nothing? Actually, I can talk about nothing. But I can talk about as things like the emptiness and awareness aspect in consciousness, okay? There is an emptiness that is a simultaneous flow or movement where all ideas, the moment they're generated, immediately dissolve. Because whatever it is that is arising simultaneously in consciousness in either one of the senses, hearing, seeing, touching, tasting, smelling, or thinking, the moment it arises, it dissolves. And so, <coughs> as do thoughts, labeling, concepts, ideas, emotions, so so do those, quote-unquote, affective or subjective elements. Okay, do you understand that? Mm-hmm. Like everything's arising and dissolving together.
1: <coughs>
0: okay? Yeah. So that... The 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 no-thingness is basically, we have the tendency to reify what simultaneously arises in our experience, meaning there is an ear and there is a sound. And both those things are arising together. Could I say there was an ear if there was no sound, or could I say there was a sound if there was no ear? But what we do is, reify that which is heard as something existing out there, separate from the simultaneous act in consciousness, which is hearing and the sound. So you could say that that's what a thing is. A thing is the mistaken concept that there's something out there that exists independent of the awareness aspect in consciousness that gives it life. So. The recognition of no thing is simply the understanding and the direct experience of the emptiness of whatever arises in conscious, which becomes a flowing, arising and dissolution. The moment something arises, well, we're conditioned beings. We've been conditioned in the same country, in similar, in similar society, so we mostly agree on certain ideas, the way things appear, let's put it that way. We have similar experiences because we have been conditioned in similar ways, but then we have the understanding that everything is conditioning, so that the way we're viewing things and the way we're experiencing the world is based on our conditioning. So then the concept of nothingness becomes a little bit imbued or enriched with the understanding that whatever my mind, my conditioned mind, does with whatever the experience is, that, that is not a permanent and solid thing. It's immensely flexible. And so then I begin to not take my own thoughts or naming or labeling of things so seriously. Because I know that next week all my ideas are going to change and so are yours. And what we think one day might be different the next. And there's the direct experience of the impermanence or the, the flowing quality of all experience so that when something arises in awareness, even if there's a labeling, even mm-hmm. if there's a reification, one recognizes that and doesn't cling to it and just lets that dissolve. You cannot stop conceptualizing and making things You have a mind, human minds, this is what human minds do, they conceptualize and make things up. But when you know that those things are arbitrary and very flexible objects in awareness, you remain grounded in the awareness in which that object or that idea or that thing, no difference, your idea and that thing are arising simultaneously. They arise and they dissolve. But you stay in the ground of your awareness, or in the ground of awareness, where everything arises and everything dissolves. So that's how I would speak about nothing. That makes sense.
1: The rise and fall. The dissolving. I I understand
0: that. And that's conditional. The arising is conditional. It's, there are circumstances that are coming together, and that is appearing, quote-unquote, out there. And there are circumstances that are coming together, quote-unquote, in here, that are appearing in terms of how things are labeled and named. And then tomorrow's another day, and there's more interdependence of ideas and experience, and then you see things a little differently. So, what it's doing is, it's not jumping to either extreme, saying that things do not appear, nor is it saying that things are any particular solid way as existing. So it's acknowledging appearance and the emptiness of appearance. That makes sense. Simultaneous. Yes.
2: Okay. There's also, let me add, another uh, uh, aspect of the use of the term nothing. and also, we're using the term, or is using the term now, very similar to the way the Buddhists use the term emptiness, so they're mm-hmm. synonymous here. But the, uh, in particular, that awareness or that consciousness in which all this is arising and into which it's all dissolving, itself is not a thing. It is a nothing. And in our language, nothing has a kind of negative meaning. We say, oh, gee, there's nothing there, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, we just don't have the proper word. This nothing is the nothing that is the potential fullness of everything. And you mentioned uh, falling asleep. Okay. We can actually experience this consciousness when literally no objects are arising in it. No appearances are arising in it. And one of the best places to do that is falling asleep. Falling asleep and waking up in the morning. So it's a very um, precious opportunity to see, I shouldn't say to see, to experience that ground nakedly that Andrea is talking about. If we can fall asleep, and instead of getting all wrapped up in the stories that our mind's starting to create and then it turns into dream, if we can just be aware and let all that stuff arise and dissolve away we enter into a place where for a while nothing's arising and then we have a direct experience that this of this awareness this consciousness that is not a thing and then we have that at least a glimpse of that ground that everything does arise out of and dissolve back into and that is who we truly are we are not any of those particular appearances that are constantly coming and going.
0: And to the degree to which we're practicing detachment with the objects that do arise in consciousness, to the degree to which we're recognizing the emptiness or um, uh, fluid, non-solid, ephemeral nature of all objects arising in our awareness, including our own thought processes, our own affective feelings, sensations, the more we're detaching from those risings, the more we can then, as awareness is without an object for a moment, the more we can direct awareness to awareness itself. Why? Because in that very process, it's so subtle that chances are objects are going to arise there so that you're pointing awareness to awareness, but then you're going to have a thought about it or you're going to have a feeling about it or an excitement or something. And right there is so subtle. You have to be equally subtle in being able to detach from whatever arises in that space. So that's why the more we're practicing this uh, becoming... Uh, familiar with this flow of emptiness, with objects and awareness, the more there's the probability or the developed capacity to turn awareness on awareness and not be distracted. Because it's scary. People talk about the fear, and that fear is there because the mind is grasping on to naming things all the time and thinking it exists in relation to those things. So then, when you're, when you're doing the practice and you're doing it well, then there's the space that opens up. So right there, you, you need to be able to be subtle, to be with your fear, to be with whatever arises there, and not be distracted by it. So that's in proportion to your capacity to detach from all the things that arise in awareness, including all fear, sensation, uh, aversion, attraction, things we want, things we don't want. The more we're paying attention and just letting everything come and go, the more then in turning awareness on awareness you can be really right there.
1: What came out of that experience, or one of those experiences for me, was a new mantra. It goes, I am everything, I know nothing. And I really feel a great sense of peace when I say that. So I understand now, after hearing you more, why I feel that way. So. The, am, the am aspect of it. Right?
2: <laughs> now, I'll give you a further step for that practice. Okay. You're saying the mantra, that mm-hmm. gives you the sense of peace. Now... Listen to the mantra. Do you say it vocally or just in your mind? Or I say
1: it vocally.
2: Okay. Listen to the mantra. And how's it go? I am.
1: Um, I am everything. I know nothing.
2: Okay. I am everything. Listen to the words, and, and now don't pay attention to the meaning of them. I am everything. It takes you right back to that nothing. I am nothing. The words themselves, the sound just the naked sound arises out of that nothing and takes you back to that nothing. So if you say the mantra and progressively give more and more space between the mantra and allow the mantra, just the words to constantly bring you back to awareness of that space of awareness, So then you won't just have the feeling or the idea about it to remind you of a past experience. It'll take you right back to the experience right now, in this moment. And that is true, by the way, of everything. The sound of a gong, a bird chirping, a dog barking. Every thought, every phenomena has the ability, if we can pay attention, it shows us where it comes from. That's consciousness, and it returns to consciousness. So we can use anything to that. But a match is good. A match focuses your attention. You get rid of other distractions, mm-hmm. and then just try to follow that. Because when you say, I am nothing, it's no longer words at the end of that. I am nothing. There it is. It's opened up for you. You see what I'm talking about?
1: Thank you.
2: I, I see Wesley there. He's <laughs> fighting his hand. His hand wants to jump up. I
1: am nothing but, but, but. Yes. Here comes the but. I thought I heard, Andrea, I thought I heard you I <laughs> that I literally don't know what I'm talking about here, but when we're aware of our awareness, uh huh. it's not our awareness, is it? That we're aware of?
0: No. Let me just clarify something. I see the tendency in many people... Well, it's the tendency in the mind of projection to think that awareness is something outside of your very own ordinary awareness. So that's why I use the word my awareness or your awareness. It's not that it's something personal that just belongs to you and no one else. It's simply that there's only one consciousness, so, but if you're, if you're looking for enlightenment in someone else's consciousness, you're making a big mistake. That could be your teacher, that could be the book you're reading about the Buddha, or about Christ or Muhammad. There's only one consciousness. It's in your direct awareness in that very moment, which Joel was just pointing to in terms of right there, in the direct experience, not in a reference to it from the past or in anticipation of the future. It's right there. So what's right there? Your very own ordinary awareness is what's right there. That's why I say your. So that awareness that is yours is one awareness. It's everyone's. But as long as you're existing in a sense of duality, where it's something out there that you need to get, then what is that? That is the delusion that's pushing you out of the presence of awareness into the future of anticipation or into regret about the past in which you identify with not being awake. That's not so complicated. You don't have to think about that. (laughs) See, because if you stop trying to change the present retrace the past or anticipate the future, you are in the presence of the flow of awareness that is itself emptiness, Mm -hmm. continuing, and awareness continuing. It's the moment we grab on to something. So your awareness, your very own ordinary, naked awareness,
1: Yes, right. Yeah, I had a question about uh, forgiveness. I was working with this person. For who? <laughs> well, I'll explain it.
2: Okay.
1: I'm working with this, uh, counseling with this person who has had a kind of abusive, traumatic life and done some you know, kind of repeated patterns that happened to them, and so I was talk- we were talking about uh, forgiveness, have to forgive yourself. Um, in order to kind of move on, then he asked me, "Well, how do you do that?" And I kind of didn't didn't have an answer. So I guess the the question was kind of in the, in the relative world: How do we? What is the mechanism for forgiveness? or how does that that operate?
2: And to whom is the
1: question directed? <laughs> to me. Start with you.
2: I think there are several answers to that, and it depends on the person that you are talking to. So I'm going to give you one kind of answer, but that doesn't mean it's the only answer. One way to approach this, particularly if it's a person who has a past history of having been abused and now is uh, acting out those patterns on someone else. Is that my understanding of the situation? Is to really come to recognize how conditioned your behavior is. If I can see that my behavior, when I get angry and when I lash out, is conditioned by, let's say, this is the way my parents behaved, so I've taken them as a role model and internalized it and so forth. If I can come to see that clearly, without judgment, then I can accept the fact, uh, and it's an act of humility, that I'm not in control. Do you know what I mean? At least not the way I imagined I was always in control of my life. Then I can begin to get humble about my own behavior, my own activities, and I can start to understand that undoing this conditioning is really going to take some time, some work, do you know what I mean? And drop the judgment about it. Cease to judge it, who cares who's right or wrong? You can go back to your parents and their parents and their parents before them. You can go back to the first amoeba. You can go back to the Big Bang. You know what I mean? It does no good. When you drop that judgment, that is forgiveness. Then your mind is no longer judging you. Then you don't have that added burden of of guilt in the in the deluded sense of feeling, oh, I'm just a bad person. I can never change. I can, you know, which is all a total waste of time. Contrition is valuable, and I make a distinction between guilt and contrition. Contrition is just simply you recognize you've you've hurt somebody. It comes from awareness. Do you know what I mean? And you feel sorry about that. But that guilt tells you the story of your life as being a victim, as being uh, uh, helpless, and so forth. That's just another. Story of I. That's just another big ego trip. You're just now you're the center of the universe again. You're the villain, but you know, as I like to say, ego. All the ego cares about is being the the star, you know, character. It doesn't care what's got a villain role or a hero role. So that kind of forgiveness comes from insight. It comes from recognizing this is conditioning. This is what in the east they call karma. And when we get to that level of recognition, then we can drop the judgment about it. It's not my fault. But here I am in this moment and I can do something. In every moment we wake up, we can do something. Just a little bit at a time. If you're aware of that condition, the very next time you feel it operating in your life, you just simply check it. You don't have to do anything else. Just don't do that and see what happens, you see? In talking about this, I think it's important, rather than looking for some sort of big act of forgiveness from the sky that's going to make everything okay, to get people to really look at their lives moment to moment, what is actually going on. That's where that kind of forgiveness happens. You know, It happens in in that moment. It happens in the moment of recognition that this is conditioning. And then the release comes in the recognition, I don't have to do this anymore. Not in a big abstract way, but right now, I don't have to say that nasty thing. I don't have to hit somebody. Do you know what I mean? I might feel my hand go up like that, and I don't have to do it. Boom, I'm suddenly free. A little bit of freedom. And that's how we begin to unravel this uh, chain of conditioning.
0: Yeah, and then um, it's very important to directly experience the difference between contrition and guilt because most of the time we're experiencing guilt and so then we wonder why our behavior doesn't change it's because we are the fixed frame of reference in the equation and we're we're fixed in terms of okay we're considering everything but we're still in the middle of it the moment of insight actually arises when you get immensely personal when you acknowledge Directly what you're feeling in that very moment. It's its not about um, becoming impersonal. It's becoming immensely, here we're defining personal and intimate with being exactly with whatever is in awareness. Without judging it, editing it, labeling it, or trying to separate from it. Simply just acknowledging whatever is there in the feeling. If we could do that, But usually we can't because something jumps in in our mind that says we shouldn't be experiencing what we're feeling. So we have to learn how to become immensely personal in acknowledging what's there. And then the moment we actually do that, we recognize that that's not only here, it's everywhere. That very thing that I'm experiencing is exactly what everyone else would be experiencing if if this situation was similar. So when I can acknowledge something very deeply in myself, then I'm willing to acknowledge it very deeply in you. But if I can't acknowledge it in myself, I'm always threatened by letting you express that to me. And I'm not going to. I'm going to stop you in some way. And so that's where all the, um, the complications of defense mechanism, then it gets so... Then we try to retrace. What are we actually trying to retrace back to? to a moment of pure being with whatever is there, without editing it. And then, when I can do that, then I can say, Oh, this is generic. Oh, this is universal. But first I have to know it in me before I can give it away to to the universe. Otherwise I'm pretending. See, this is the other great fear. That there's something very beautiful in in the in the heart of everyone, that we're afraid to know our true feelings because we don't want to cause any damage or harm to others. So a lot of our defense mechanisms are the intention is good, but the <coughs> result isn't isn't so um, so skillful. The heart does not want to harm, so we have to learn how to bear enormous energies and uncomfortable, gross. Uh, conflicts, so that we can actually bear that without distracting ourselves sideways by having thoughts about it or acting it out or to just simply become the space. And really it is to become the space because if we think we exist as any particular point or identity, then we're going to bounce again. That feeling is going to be molecules having no space, hitting each other. So to to make the space happen simply means to meditate, the flow of emptiness and awareness, to let whatever's there simply flow through, arise and dissolve, not to be fooled by thinking it exists as anything solid. That's becoming a space in which that can reveal itself and disappear. So we have to we have to create that space in in our capacity to be present. Um, madness. I know that madness is always available, um, <laughs> and I'm, I sense that there's some connectedness between madness and the, the state that uh, we attain. Uh, in meditation and I would like to know if you can say anything about that I'm, I'm gonna go first on this
2: one just a short thing
0: yeah.
2: Zorba says a man needs a little madness in order to cut the rope and be free <laughs> that's all you want us, now, now it's for
0: you you <laughs> um, I guess we can't, again, how can we speak about madness? Madness is a lack of something. The way you're going to define madness is the absence of how you're supposed to be. Right. right. So An what is that? How are you going to define sanity? with the community around you. Right, so the community is a consensual validation of a particular way of, of being. Right. And really, this is where, Truly, the act of courage is something that has to be continually acknowledged. You, each day, we have to wake up, and the first thought of the day has to be: um, Is am I here for Caesar? Give to Caesar? What is Caesar? <laughs> what is? Why am I here today?
2: Whom do I serve?
0: Whom I serve? do I serve? Perfect question. Whom do I serve? Because the truth is. If you're looking to serve the consensual validity of society, depending upon who you're with that very day, um, if you're a very creative and mad person, you're going to be with a lot of different people in that day, and you're going to, sh- you're going to see different sides of yourself be revealed, actually. But what is, the, what is the one continual factor if you're truly serving your divine awakening? It's not to take anything seriously. To give everything the equal respect of your attention and awareness. And to recognize all things with a detached presence of awareness. If you can do that, then there's no madness or lack of madness. Then you don't have to go to the extreme of right and wrong. The chances are very good that you will simply act in an appropriate fashion. Because we are conditioned by billions and trillions of previous mind moments in our very lifetimes, if we're 20, 30, 40, or 50 years old. And you, you don't need to worry about responsiveness. What you need to do is simply practice detachment and the recognition of your commitment to pure <coughs> awareness and open-heartedness with whatever's arising in you in relation to whatever's arising in circumstances. And if you don't get locked into the fixed frame of reference that you're the center of the world, you can then be in a flexible state where you can drop your own sense of, of point perspective and see where another person is coming from. Then you can really be appropriate. Because then... You're not um, afraid to drop your position, because you don't have one. (laughs) But your awareness of your position arising, if a position arises in your mind, be it a thought, that's just a thought. Everything is equally seen as just objects arising in awareness. And you stay grounded in the very heart or space of awareness. Then you're immensely appropriate. Immensely mad. Because none of it is real. Then you're totally insane.
2: I think uh, this question of madness, though, is interesting because uh, I think for a lot of people this is a big obstacle in the path. That they are afraid that if they get into deep states of meditation or if they really try to practice what mystics talk about, they'll go crazy. And if you examine that, that usually means that you will lose control. And this is true, because ultimately you're surrendering totally the delusion that you are in control. This is the the, the key delusion here. Uh, in the uh, Abrahamic traditions, they express it as, you know, the idea of self-will as opposed to God's will. I mean, if you look at it from that point of view, the fact is God does everything. You don't do anything. There's only one will in the universe, you know. Uh, if you look at it from the point of view of um, Buddhism, for instance, it's Buddha nature just expressing itself. There's no individual you expressing some will uh, against somebody else's will. It, it appears that way under delusion, but it just isn't true. So this whole idea, uh, this sense of self-will that we are in control is something that has to be surrendered. And I think, though, the as a practical matter, dealing with this is just simply to, A, pay attention and see how much of your life really is truly governed by your supposed self-will. That's the first thing, just through insight. So, for instance, one of the things that uh, people can start to look at immediately is the fact that almost everything we choose, we choose because we like it, and we never choose what we don't like. And when we start to watch our lives this way, it shows us how mechanical our lives really are. There's no freedom in that. Do you know what I mean? And then we can even watch for the moment that a decision is made and try and find who the decider is behind the decision. So, you know, you can do this like in a restaurant. you're, let's say you got a menu. First of all, you eliminate all the things you don't like right away. And then maybe you have two things that are your favorite dishes on the menu. It's interesting to see how much agony people go through because they can't make up their minds. you know. I don't know if I want the, you know, the roasted sprouts or the the prime rib. But then watch to see how that decision is made, you know. The waiter comes around and is waiting and you're sitting there and you just something comes out of your mouth. If we watch this carefully, we see that decisions certainly are made, but who's the maker of them? Who's the decider? So it's through that kind of uh, specific, concrete insight in our daily lives that then we begin to understand we actually don't have all this control we're trying to hang on to. And that makes us relax. And then there are other things that you can do, uh, again, and take small steps to open this up. So, for instance, if you're a person who doesn't like, uh, shy about speaking publicly, do you know what I mean? Make a point to do it. This is what Zorba meant, you know, have a little madness. What's going to happen? (coughs) The worst that everybody's going to happen is you'll make a fool of yourself and everybody go, boo, so what? (laughs) So take risks. I mean, we're talking about little things in life, The little things we're afraid to do. We're afraid because we won't be in control. It'll be spontaneous. In If we do that, we learn the joy of spontaneous activity. Or we learn the joy, if we want to put it in uh, Western terms, of allowing the divine to express itself through us. And all of us actually know this at some point in our lives. I don't think I've ever met anybody who hasn't had... Some moment of singing, dancing, doing some kind of performance where something takes over. A sports uh, activity, you know, Uh, running, jogging, playing tennis. I don't care what it is. Something takes over. They feel that they are not doing it anymore. And how precious and how delightful that is. This is a true glimpse of reality here from a mystic's point of view. You could be a football player and not be interested in religion, mysticism, or nothing else, you know, but your body goes up and snatches that ball out of the air, that impossible catch, and you come down, and it's just grace. And we apply the word grace to that. It's graceful, and literally it is. So we know, you see, the thing is, we just think, oh, that was some serendipitous moment. How did that happen? Well, I couldn't possibly live my life that way. Why not?
0: Why not? It's joy.
2: Do you see? So we can deal with madness in little step-by-step ways. If we have a little bit of courage, we can put ourselves out there, we can observe, and we can, through that process, stop being afraid of madness. Stop being afraid of losing control. And we discover the very same situation that we were afraid of because we weren't going to be in control, we now long for. We long not to have this burden of the sense of I have to be in control all the time. We discover through our own experience, what a relief to put that burden down. Do you know what I mean? What a relief to let the great Tao flow through our lives. You know, that's the whole secret of mysticism, you know. Uh, sometimes it feels like a great struggle but the the point here is not to struggle to attain some sort of abstract ideal of the good the point here is joy do you know happiness, love the point is to discover it (laughs) to discover that current that is already there running through our lives how do we discover it
0: and it is is the very energy or intensity of fear that is the doorway to Uh, desolidifying anything that's obstructing us from having this joy. This joy is the natural, is the reality. So why aren't we experiencing it? Because we have ideas about control or about fear of risk or about, oh, if this happens, then this will be so terrible. And everyone knows this, 99 times out of 100 it's our anticipation of what's awful that is worse than what actually happens how is it that we can create such awful scenarios and then in the midst of whatever it is we're afraid of it's never comes close to what we're afraid it is ever it's it's like I don't know, it's some kind of addiction to terror. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's,
2: it's just Leela
0: <laughs> so so it, whatever it is that we're averting, whatever it is we're afraid of risking, that's I mean it really is true. like there's yes, the joy is there, but the doorway to the joy is through whatever whatever's obstructing it. So oftentimes it appears as the fear. Now, you don't have to force yourself to go through fear. A, one of Aesop's fables is uh, this, the, the sun and the wind have this, uh, this dialogue about, um, actually it's more of an argument, about who's going to get that schmuck down there to take his coat off. And the wind says, oh, I can win, I can win, I can get him to take his coat off. And the sun says, no, I can win, I can win, I can get him to take his coat off. And so the wind blows and blows and blows, and the man just pulls his coat tighter and tighter and tighter. And then the sun says, Now it's my turn. And the sun just radiates its warmth. And the man just becomes like really hot and just takes his coat off. And so we have to have that same kind of a power in our own risking, that it's not about forcing. It's about radiating this this loving, open, dissolving heart. You know, it's like it's on the outbreath, what we do in meditation, as we're breathing out, we detach from whatever the moment's experience has given us. Detachment is offering, is giving to God what is God's. It's to stay in the space of this great offering. Who am I serving? to continually allow detachment to reveal itself, and then you recognize you've always been that, and then whatever you're afraid of just dissolves.
1: Yes. Related to decision-making, and then also I was thinking of the word discrimination, um, ultimately then, does it really matter whether or not we vote for Al Gore, Ralph Nader, or George W. Bush? And is it really going to matter who is going to be, who is the president of the United States? If, it, if this is all really a play in consciousness, and ultimately it's all going to go back to consciousness, then does it matter who we choose for president?
2: What do you think about the Carthage question? Should we go to war with Carthage or not? I don't,
1: know. I don't know what Carthage is. This
2: was a burning question. I'm being serious now. This was a burning question in Rome about 100 B.C. Carthage was Rome's rival, and they fought a, a series of wars. And there was an ongoing debate in the Roman Senate, uh, Senate about how to handle the problem of Carthage. I bring it up because nobody here gives a damn about Carthage. <laughs> it was a burning question of the day. It was so important in that day. Do you know what I mean? It would have made the the, the debate over whether Gore or Bush should be president look, uh, you know, stupid. I mean, this was, you know, the survival of Rome was at stake. Uh, there was one famous senator who, uh, every time he got up to give a speech about anything, he would begin with, Carthage must be destroyed. That was his line, you see. So, is it important or is it not it, it, this is really comes to the heart of the question about how we live our lives uh, ultimately speaking, what do you think does it in the in the life of the entire universe, from the big bang to the end, how important is whether Bush got elected or Al Gore? okay this gives you a perspective, you know what I mean. Uh, Andrea lives down in Bishop, California. This is in the Owens Valley. It's beautiful down there because you can go out on the desert. It's high desert country and at, at night, and you can look up at the stars, and there are no city lights to interfere, and, you know, you see these billions of stars spread across that velvet emptiness and so forth, and it gives you a little perspective about your life here on this planet. So this is a very, very uh, salutary perspective to have. But on the other hand, if we take the attitude, well, it doesn't matter what I do, whether I vote for Gore or Bush or whatever, then we have to look at the other perspective. The other perspective is every single instant is a divine disclosure. It is a divine revelation. Every single instant has got ultimate importance. Not the importance that we attribute it through our relative judgments and our our own personal concerns and so forth. It is the importance of this is a manifestation of God. And this is what God does for a living, you know? <laughs> God expresses all the possibilities, and they're infinite, that there are for formation out of formlessness. So in that sense, we have to live our lives with a reverence and a consecration that is dedicated to allowing this expression to work itself out. And that even includes our relative judgment about whether we want Bush or Gore. That relative judgment comes from a certain character that's in the play, and it's to be honored. So it's really seeing simultaneously that this drama is the divine game and that our opinions of it are just part of that drama. They aren't absolute. Do you see? Then we can can, uh, fulfill our roles in this drama completely passionately, throwing ourselves into it totally and yet still have that larger dimension of awareness saying, oh, isn't this exciting? I wonder how it's going to come out. And be able to, for instance, now Bush is president, drop it. What's going to happen next? We don't know, do we? Kind of interesting. Curious guy he is. If you're still hanging on to gore, you know, that's, that's water under the bridge, unless you plan to make a revolution over this, which is kind of silly. I mean, you know, we're really talking about Tweedly Dumb, Tweedly D here.
1: <laughs> so, wow.
2: You see what I'm driving at? It's like a, a play or a movie. We do not applaud actors and actresses who don't throw themselves into the park. They don't get a big applause at the end. We don't say, oh, what a great performance. So you have to play it. But actors and actresses never forget that they are actors in this movie or this play. Or if you do forget that, that is psychosis. No, that is true madness. Uh, some of you know this already, but there was actually a famous case in the uh, late 50s of, uh, or early 60s of an actor uh, who played on Border Patrol. What was his name? This, or this TV movie about, you know, border patrol, And it, uh, this was an ongoing role he had, you know, in a series. And uh, one day on a flight from Los Angeles to New York, he flipped out and tried to arrest somebody on the airplane. He did. He crossed that line. He thought he was the border patrol guy, you know, and they, uh, I don't know, took him to a sanatorium for six months, and he was all right. Doped him up some Thorazine. He was fine. <laughs> so this is the point. This is the best analogy I know for what we're doing here, so to speak. And then if we can do that, if we can play all this passionately, throw ourselves into the park, but not get lost, that is to be awake in the play, and that is to enjoy the play completely.
0: And then I see I see one other aspect of it, too, that if um, if we can actually moment to moment, see the sacred in what is sacred. So how do I see the sacred in what is appearing when I have opinions that it is wrong, right? And the the way to do that is to um, become as unbiased as possible, given our predicament or our situation or our conditioning, to actually again and again detach from grasping onto anything is right or anything is wrong, but not letting go of this sense of rightness or wrongness. But whatever we think, that thing is the right thing and this thing is the wrong thing, can we then recognize that the sacredness of of the universe is that the rightness and the wrongness is always displaying itself but it's not one particular thing, and if I don't grasp it as that, then I am seeing a greater order and a greater beauty. So that means that the person who is unbiased has a huge, a godlike point of view. It recognizes the rightness and the wrongness, meaning how everyone in the equation is affected. And then it makes decisions based on a larger understanding. And to the degree to which we could all do that, then we'd all be statesmen and not politicians. You know, so that's the integrity. The integrity is to play the part and at the same time to recognize the sacred disclosure that the particular display is why to see. But if, if I only see from a particular point of view, I have to see the same thing over and over and over again until I'm willing to drop my point of view and see what it's actually showing. So the unbiased view is, is a detached view that comes from um, a willingness to open your heart to suffering. Then you don't have to suffer so much because you get the message.
2: I want to say one, uh, not one, I want to say a few words here. (laughs) I've got a precept of honesty. A few words here about this word, detachment, that uh, Andrea's been using quite a bit this morning. And it's one of the four fundamental principles of a spiritual path. But it's very important, very important to understand that detachment does not mean stoicism, does not mean holding back and pushing away. And there's a very easy uh, definition of detachment from a spiritual point of view. Detachment is neither grasping, which Andrea's been talking about, at things we want, things we desire, the way it should be. Oh, I wish Gore had won. Oh, gosh, you know. But it's equally not pushing anything away. Equally not pushing anything away. So it's not pushing away Bush's victory, if that's the way you happen to uh, uh, fall on that issue. It's not pushing away any aspect of reality, including your own feelings about it. And maybe especially your own feelings about it. So detachment is this ability to play fully in life without anything sticking, if we like to put it that way. And you know, there's a a very good example of detachment, that, uh, uh, a role model, talking about movies, that I always like to recommend. And that is Zorba the Greek. If any of you don't know that movie or haven't seen it in a long time, I suggest you see it. In fact, we now have it in the library. Do we not?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It can be checked out from the library. Zorba is a model of detachment. He has other spiritual qualities, perhaps that he lacks, but he has <laughs> detachment naturally. This is what the movie's about, how to live in a detached way. That sounds strange, because if you know anything about Zorba, you think of, this is not a guy who's detached. But you watch the movie carefully. And sometimes, and maybe I'll do this again on a Sunday, sometimes I've actually shown the movie, and we stop and use it as a teaching tool. Zorba is living detached life. Passionate life, but detached. Zorba knows when to let things go. Zorba knows how to throw himself into a project and 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 uh, give it everything he's got. And when it doesn't work, okay, drop it. <clears throat> What's next? The lamb. He's always in the moment, always coming back to the moment. Another way to um, get a handle <laughs> of this, uh, a specific, very important form of detachment, comes from the Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu classic, and they, uh, Krishna talks about the necessity to be detached from the results of our action, which would go to whether you should vote or not, for instance. And, and a, a major teaching that runs through this work is always this, you have a right to act, and more than a right, you have a duty to act, but be detached from the results. And Gandhi, who read the Bhagavad Gita every day of his life, used to put this into practice in his own very active, very political life, And he would talk about it, and he would say, in every moment I do what I can see from my relative point of view is the best thing to do. I try to act from the purest intention that I can find. What is good for the whole? But the results are up to God. I don't control the results. Do you see? So if you are constantly acting out of as pure an attention as you can find in your heart, even if the results come out not the way you wanted them to, that is not your fault. And in fact, it's arrogant to think you're going to control the universe. That is up to God. We can always learn in a practical way, oh, I won't do it that way again. And so the next time a similar situation comes up, you do something different. But still again, the results are up to God, be the detachment the, the from the results. And that means in every moment, you are present in that moment with the task at hand. What has to be done now? Whether it's voting for this person or that, whether it's simply deciding what's the task around your house that has to be done, whether it's a life-changing decision, it doesn't matter. You're present for this. And part of your mind isn't hanging on to uh, some imaginary universe that could have happened, that you wish maybe it happened, but didn't happen. So you're not clinging to the past here. You're not clinging to the, those results that didn't happen, that you wanted to happen. They're gone, gone with the wind. So th- th- this is the way we're always in the present. We're not, part of our mind isn't going ahead saying, oh, I, I hope it comes out this way. Oh, I just hope, I hope so-and-so wins the election. No, we're right here. We cast our vote like a good citizen. And we go on. So this understanding of detachment is really important. When you hear this word from either of us or when you read it in mystical texts, and you will because it is one of the, the most profound principles, please do not imagine it means you're supposed to make yourself somehow stoic about the world. That, you know, that things should be able to happen in front of you that are horrifying and you should be able to sit there and have no emotional reaction. This is the ego's dream. Oh, the ego would love that. No more suffering, you know. <laughs> Children can be slaughtered in front of me. The world won't bother you anymore. I mean, you know, that is, that is the, the depth of delusion. That is not having a, a heart that's so totally open that you have the space to experience all that suffering that's in the world. That's what compassion means, to suffer with. But it doesn't, it's your experience in the suffering, but it's no longer personal. That's why it's the end of suffering. Or I should say, you're experiencing the pain, the sorrow, the sadness, all that. But it's no longer mine. That's the recognition that frees you from
0: suffering. And it actually frees us from this, the entire sense of duality. Um. When we have have to practice detachment, when we think about it, that there's uh, something or someone out there that we have to act right or wrong with, that's a relative level of caring. But the more we stay present for the true experience of what's actually arising and dissolving in awareness, the more the sense of self and others simply dissolves of its own. So the problem takes care of itself. So compassion actually is birthed into its absolute meaning just because you're doing the practice of liberating beings. To liberate all beings means to first to liberate all beings that appear in your own awareness, your own thoughts, ideas, thoughts and ideas of others to to give everything equal time of your attention and awareness and your passion and to let everything go because you know that all things are constantly being revealed there's nothing else happening so whether whatever we choose or not choose is totally irrelevant there's only one show and this is it
2: ta da <laughs> <laughs> why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close (laughs) on that great note and you're welcome to stay and uh, check out the library have
1: some tea Uh, until we see you again peace to you all